Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to find the second book of your Bible, the book of Exodus, and I want you to find the seventh chapter, Exodus chapter 7. I'm very excited to begin with you again this journey through one of the most important stories of the people of God. If you are a guest of ours, you are not on the outside of this journey because we're only just re-beginning. We began the book of Exodus several weeks ago and worked our way through the first six chapters, and then we took a pause. We took a pause to spend some time on our vision. In fact, I have great news for you. If you've been a part of the vision journey that we've been on called More Than Ever, you know that it culminated last week. We ask every service and every campus to go on a journey with us, to galvanize deeply who we are as a church. In fact, I specifically made this request for you. I ask our leaders and everyone else to give above their tithes and offerings to a three-year commitment, a, a campaign with three clear goals, to aggressively retire our debt, to make sure we take care of our current campuses and the upfront cost of starting new campuses as we continue to flesh out this vision of being a deeply faithful, remarkably healthy, highly impactful, multi-site church. And today I have some great news. Because you believe in the vision of us being deeply faithful remarkably healthy and highly impactful. Families like mine and yours all over our campuses last week committed $8.9 million to more than ever. Let's give God the glory for that. We are so excited about that. And I know a few of you were out of town, so bump us on up to nine if you don't mind. I mean, come on, 10 families can do that. We'd love for you to do that for us. We are continuing to receive those pledges. We will continue to receive those pledges. For those of you here with us live and those of you in our online audience, you can go to churchofthemill.com slash more than ever. Those three words together, no space, no punctuation, more than ever. And you can make your commitment as I did and we saw many other families do. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are two things I want you to know and then we're gonna dive into the book of Exodus. One, and we're going to kick this giving off in the month of December. The commitment was for 24, 25, 26. Many of you, like Laurel and I, will give monthly because that's how we earn money monthly. But we're asking everyone to participate in a first fruit offering to seed that, the end of year contribu contribution on the weekend of December 3rd. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. In fact, I'm excited to get back into the Bible and not deal with the subject of finances. We dealt with it enough over the last six weeks. But also, you deserve to know how those dollars are going to be spent. Now we have a number, and because of that number, we can begin making a plan to bring to you to show you what portion will go to the debt retirement, what we'll use and invest in Woodruff renovation, what we'll do to help Lake Cooley and their space issues, what we will do to get ready to launch a third and a fourth campus potentially next year. We can't wait to share that with you. We want your understanding and affirmation in that. And you can look forward to that as we begin the new year. It will be some exciting times. Speaking of exciting times, it's also very interesting times in our world. On October 7th, you know that Hamas, a terrorist organization, launched a surprise attack and wickedly and viciously killed many Israeli civilians. And that created what is now called the Israeli-Hamas war that you're seeing in the headlines even today. 
Don't you think it's interesting that the struggle for that piece of geography still happens today? That is at the heart of the book of Exodus. Now, we're not in the book of Genesis. Don't get confused. But in the book of Genesis, Abraham is told by God he's going to not only be the father of a great nation, he's going to be given a great land. That land geographically is what we know today as the state of Israel, that region. But Genesis does not end with victory. Genesis ends with slavery. And for 400 years between Genesis and Exodus, the people of God were not enjoying the inheritance Abraham was promised. They were certainly multiplying and God was prospering them. In fact, if you remember, for those of you who went with me in Exodus chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, if you remember that one of the reasons Pharaoh threatened all the Israeli or the Jewish baby boys was because the, Is- the Israelites, the Jewish people, were prospering and multiplying at a greater rate than the Egyptians. And I showed you that this is in keeping with the promise God made to prosper this people. Now, this happened, of course, to kick off the book of Exodus. And Exodus really begins by looking at the man God will use to lead the people out. His name, of course, is Moses. And if you remember, that series was called God Sent a Man. However, we come now to the moment where Moses goes from being chosen and called and commissioned and sent to actually going and doing the work. And in doing so, what is ushered in is one of the more famous accounts in Scripture of how God breaks the hard heart of Pharaoh through a series of Plagues. Now, there are 10 plagues as recorded in the book of Exodus, but we're not going to spend 10 weeks, one on each plague. Talk about an encouraging series. Hey, today we're in gnats, and next week we're in skin boils. Bring your friends. <laughs> but actually, actually, it is a fascinating thing to apply the plagues to your life. Now, I don't want you to live the plagues. I don't want you to suffer the plagues. But I do want you to take these incredible accounts of true acts of God and apply the truths they teach to your lives. And and to do that, it really speaks to your perspective or your view. One of the things we've seen that saddened my heart is the polarization of this issue in the war between Israel and Hamas. And of course, Exodus chapter 7 is not a political text about a modern day event. It's a historical eternal text that illustrates the fact that that region will always be in contention until the Lord returns. If you don't read anything into it prophetically, know this. Every time there is a war there in that region, it is affirmation of exactly what Jesus said would happen and would continue to happen until, of course, he returns. In fact, the final battle between good and evil, the battle that we biblically coin Armageddon, will happen right where these battles are taking place even today. And it's a reminder that all is not well in the world. 
There's much to be grateful for today. I drove to work this morning an encouraged man. But that doesn't mean the world isn't broken. It absolutely is. It's what makes the gospel so good. And don't miss the connection between this epic account of God releasing a captive people through his power over creation and moving toward another plague, the plague of sin, which will be defeated by God's power over creation, death, hell, and the grave. Exodus chapter 7 is a great introduction into having the proper view of the plagues. And in the proper view of the plagues, we're introduced to the story and we're also introduced to the very first plague, what's often called the plague of blood. Read with me in your copy of God's Word, Exodus chapter 7. I'll take the first seven verses first. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And look at verse 3. We see the sovereignty of God at work. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And that's the first preview we get. By great acts of judgment, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And then we're added again what we've learned before. I love verse 7. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. One of my dear sisters, I will not call her name. I walked up to her this morning. I said, what you going to be for Halloween? She said, a mean old woman like I was yesterday. <laughs> I'm 81 years old. I said, you look great for 81. Moses was 80 years old when all this happened. So the first view I want you to see is a rear view. We need to look backwards for just a moment and remember why we're even in this study. Remember I told you there are five reasons to study books like the book of Exodus? The first reason is we're them. We're the people of God. So by learning of the ancient people of God, we understand who we are. We also live in their world. If, if anything has been illustrated to us since October 7th, is that we've not reached some enlightened form of peace. This is one of the things that the godless in our culture want to teach you. They want you to believe that with enough enlightenment and enough information that wicked and evil go away. That's not true. That's not true. And the Bible affirms that it's not true. And so we live in the same world that Moses lived in, that Aaron lived in. And while Moses and Aaron have been dead for centuries, the God of Moses is my God. The God that Moses prayed to is the one I prayed to this morning. The God that Moses worshiped is the one we just worship. We also serve him, and their story was so important to the shaping of our identity that God contained it and preserved it in Scripture. And as we'll see even in today's passage, the saving God of heaven is, of course, none other than our Savior. So walking through this book reminds us of how glorious 
and loving and faithful our Savior is. Verses 1 through 8 is really a review of where we've come. In fact, I would defer back to those previous sermons in unpacking it. One of the things that we see in play is in verse 2 and 3, God not only sends Moses on this great mission, he tells Moses the exact outcome of the mission. When God calls you to something, you will not be given the outcome. But one of the reasons you can step out in confidence into the unknown of your future is that the unknown of your future is only unknown to you. In, in other words, the God who calls us to step into the unknown has never known a moment of anything being unknown to him because all knowledge comes from him. I've joked with you many times, God doesn't get ideas. Where's he going to get them from? All knowledge comes from him. So whenever God asks you to do something that is hard, that's filled with unknowns, that there are variables and questions you don't have the answer to. Remember that he who calls you to it will call you through it because nothing you're going to face is a surprise to him. This is verse 2 and verse 3. Look at it. The Bible says so clearly, you shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, look at verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. We had some fun with that in our earlier series. It's nothing like God saying, I'm going to call you to do something. It's going to be really hard, and it's not going to work the first time. But go do it anyway. The theological truth, though, as we look backwards in the rear view for just a moment, is really verse 5, because verse 5 is something new. We've not encountered this yet. Look at verse 5. The Scripture says this way in verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now, at your first reading, you may think, well, that doesn't sound new. It actually is. Up until this point, the only people God has concerned himself in revelatory knowledge. In other words, the only people God is saying, I want you to know that I am the Lord are his people. This is the first time where God says, I'm not just interested in every Jew knowing that I am the Lord. I want the Egyptians to know that I am the Lord. If we drop that in our New Testament reality, this is the heartbeat of missions. Missions, reaching people, is not just exposing people to the idea that there may be another option. It is being the people of God under the leadership of the Spirit of God, proclaiming the Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God, preaching the Savior of God so that the world may know He is the one true God. In other words, Moses' task just got global. God is not just interested in liberating the Jews. He's interested in establishing his lordship among all people. There was a pagan king named Cyrus in Isaiah's prophetic work. And interestingly, Isaiah spoke a prophetic word over Cyrus. This is what God said to this pagan king. I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. 
I equip you. So God, in Isaiah's prophecy, had chosen a Persian king named Cyrus and said, I equip you, though you do not know me. Cyrus didn't know God. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. When you fast forward to the New Testament, what does Paul say about the risen Christ? Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? Why? Look at verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's heaven, earth, and hell. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In eternity, theologians call it the final state. When all has been settled, there will be no atheists. There will be no worship of false gods. Every person in hell and every person in heaven will know who the one true God is. Yet now, because of his patience, his kindness, and his mercy, he leaves his people here to make that truth known to those while there is time to repent and to believe. And we see this even in the book of Exodus. Moses, I'm sending you, and through you I'm going to deliver these signs, and I'm going to establish to every Egyptian that I am the Lord. I love that last statement in verse 7. Now Moses was 80 years old. You know what D.O. Moody said about this? This is a great quote. I love this. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, 40 years in the desert learning he was nobody, and 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. (laughs) One of the great wisdoms of this passage is that there is never a moment in your life where you're beyond being useful to God for great things. So that's our rear view. And then we come to a preview. One sign that happens that's not really a plague categorically, as as much as it is a preview of the signs to come. Look what happens beginning in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh and that it may become a serpent. We've seen that miracle before. Remember, that's the miracle God gave him at the burning bush. That's the miracle that Moses performed in front of the Jewish leaders to show them that he truly was God's man to come. And now he and Aaron are going to perform that miracle in front of Pharaoh. So this is not a new moment for Moses. It will be a new moment for Pharaoh. Look what happens in this same passage beginning in verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh And did, just as the Lord commanded, Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. Some of your older translations use the word magicians. Now, at this point, we have a decision to make theologically. Historically, there are two lines of thought. Neither change the meaning of the passage. We do know that there were magicians, sorcerers, involved in much of antiquity and pagan worship. It's still very much true today. 
We understand that even tomorrow as we celebrate the sweet things of seeing children's imagination and watching them dress up and giving loved ones and neighbors candies, there's a dark side and a horrifically evil side to what originated in our knowledge of Halloween. And when you encounter things like that in the culture, you have to reject some things. Some things you can receive, and some things you not only reject them or receive them, you redeem them. You take that which is evil, and you make it good and useful. And when we understand the dark and the spiritual world, we're not flipping about it. We don't take it for granted. Some scholars believe that there was demonic activity involved in the sorcery of Pharaoh's magicians and that they were allowed to do that which is supernatural. The enemy, Satan, has limited supernatural powers and there is and are demonic activities. When people ask me as a pastor, Pastor, what do you think about ghosts? Or what do you think about things that I don't understand? I, I always remind them, dead people are dead. The Bible clearly establishes when you pass from this life, you do not come back and you are either in the presence of God or you're cast out of his presence. But there's no doubt that there is demonic activity that can happen to confuse and to scare and to frighten people. And, and when we walk in the newness of life and we're indwelt by the Spirit of God and we are a child of Christ, those things have no power over us. They have no dominion over us. They certainly can influence us if we allow them, but we cannot be possessed by a demon, nor should we be fearful of those, which is why we do, and often it gets made fun of and it shouldn't, but we do speak the name of Jesus over anything we come in contact with that is of the enemy because it's it's not by our authority that we do spiritual battle. It is by the authority of the Savior who's already condemned Satan and all of his demonic underlings to hell forever. They're simply on borrowed time. And so, did these Egyptian sorcerers have some supernatural power or was it magic as we know magic? You ever paid for a ticket to go see a real magician? It is fascinating what they can do with sleight of hand, with illusion, and with trickery. The Bible doesn't really give us an explanation. What it does say is that Aaron and Moses are never called magicians. Moses is a re almost retired shepherd. So there's no skill in him to do anything other than to throw the stick on the ground and God turned it into a serpent. Well, Pharaoh summons his spiritual powers, and look what happens in this first sign, beginning in verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and the magicians of Egypt also did the same thing, and notice how the text says, by their secret arts. So, so Moses didn't hide anything. Here's my staff, boom, there's the serpent. By their secret arts, some snakes were produced. <laughs> and this is when my God did the ultimate one-up. Look what the Bible says happens. Then Pharaoh summoned and wise men and sorcerers, and they and the magicians of Egypt, and also did the same with their secret arts. Verse 12, for each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Oh, you make a snake? My snake will eat your snake. Now, there's something in play here. Picture in your mind the ancient Egyptian Pharaoh headdress. Look at it on the screen. What's most prominent? A serpent. See, God didn't just pick any old animal. 
He picked what they believed to be a sign of their strength to show them who truly was God. This is actually has a name and a definition. I'll put it on the screen. In ancient Egypt, it was called a uraeus. It represented divinity, sovereignty, royal authority. The Pharaoh wore a uraeus symbol on his crown in order to represent his authority of lower Egypt. The uraeus was also a protective symbol and was believed to guard the Pharaoh. <laughs> so he's wearing a serpent, watching his little fake serpents get eaten by God's serpent. I, I couldn't help but think about what happened in 2003 when Siegfried and Roy, these famous magicians, were performing, and one of their big white tigers attacked Roy, drug him off the stage, and almost killed him. Now, that tells you that what they did is phenomenal. They were amazing showmen, but it was trickery. It wasn't divine power. In fact, he was paralyzed for the rest of his life because of this brutal attack of this amazingly powerful animal. You see, a magician can tame and train a tiger, but only God makes tigers. We can do a lot of things in this world, both in the dark side of spirituality, but also with trickery. But Moses and Aaron show their serpent's superiority, not because of the serpent, but because of the God of the serpent. The interesting thing, though, is that most scholars believe this is but a sign of what's about to happen. Because look what took place beginning in the third phrase of verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, look at verse 13. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, there's a tension here that we need to address. Does Pharaoh harden his heart, or does God harden Pharaoh's heart? You know the answer. Yes. The Scripture doesn't relieve the tension. This is the great wonder of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We have no reason to believe that God Pharaoh hardened that God hardened Pharaoh's heart forever. But the Scripture clearly teaches us that Pharaoh began with a hard heart and God let him remain in a hard heart. Now, how do you apply something like that? Don't ever tell anyone that tomorrow they can turn from their sin. If someone is tender and soft toward the Lord, today is the day to deal with whatever you're dealing with. I don't have any scripture guarantee that says God extends his grace tomorrow the same way he extends it today. Because I have no guarantee that the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life will choose to continue. I have known people who for years pushed hard against the will of God. And finally, in a moment of great brokenness, God's grace won out. But I've also seen just the opposite. People who pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed to the point that there was so much hardness and so much callousness that the grace of God never penetrated them unto belief. It's why it is not a flippant thing to assume 
It is not a good thing to be flippant about the assumption of tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. God clearly is in control of this situation, and I need him to be because I know that God is so much God, he will use his grace in the redeemed lives to accomplish his will, and he used the rejection of him in the unredeemed lives to accomplish his will. And what we find is what Moses is trying to tell us is that while Pharaoh may be the Pharaoh, he may have the throne and may have the people of God in captivity, he is not the king of Exodus. He is not the king of this book. God is. Now, once we get this preview, we then get the first plague, which really sets in place a worldview. Your worldview of these plagues affects your ability to apply them to your life. Look what the Bible says happens beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. Pharaoh and Moses both were morning people. They tend to always meet in the morning. Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. This is significant. Don't miss this. Most people did not bathe in the Nile. But those who were considered distinguished, the royalty, would have private access to places where they could bathe. Remember how Moses was found when he was abandoned in a basket by his sister and mother in order to save his life? It was because the daughter of Pharaoh went down to the river to bathe. Most scholars also believe that the bathing that was happening in Pharaoh's home was not just for hygiene purposes, but actually it was a part of their worship of the river. It was spiritual cleansing. We're not foreign to that. We use gallons and gallons of water in this room to represent spiritual cleansing when people profess Christ and are baptized. It is a common thing in many religious practices to use bathing as a part of the ceremony. So was Pharaoh going down for his morning shower or was he going down for his morning worship service? Probably both. And so this is the point where God says, I'm about to begin these plagues, which are mostly called signs in the Bible, to prove to Pharaoh that he's not the king and his God is not the king. And by the way, guess what? The primary God of Egypt is always represented as the river, the Nile. Just like the serpent was supposed to represent strength and God cut right at the heart of that, God's first plague is at the heart of the very thing that is a created event, a river, but had been worshipped as the source of life. Now look what happens beginning in verse 14 of this passage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take your hand and the staff turned into a serpent and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus, verse 17 says the Lord, by this you will know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all the pools of water, so all the water. 
so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water turned to blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt, now watch this, but the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by secret arts. Two things that are ironic there. One, we have no reason to believe that they were able to produce the red water they called blood at the same scale. Anybody can turn a gallon of water into something or at least give me the impression they've turned it into something. You touch a whole river, God's done it. Secondly, if they really were on Pharaoh's side, why are they making the problem worse? Why not reverse the curse? Third, where'd they get the water to turn it into blood if all the water is already blood? N none of this makes sense. And so, by trickery, they're trying to hold their own. Now, the Scripture says, the Bible goes on to say, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. Plagues ultimately are creation reversed. Think about it. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see animals harm mankind. Creation order was that animals serve mankind. Light's going to cease, and darkness is going to overwhelm. Water's going to become a source of death. Firstborn, what do you do with the firstborn? You celebrate him or her. They gain the inheritance. They're the prince of the kingdom. The firstborn will ultimately perish. And this is not just a theme in Exodus. This is a biblical theme. From the moment sin entered the world, creation has been turned on its head. And one of the things God does to show that he's recreating creation by redeeming that which is lost is by reversing creation, thereby showing his power. It's not just an exodus. I mean, think about Elijah squaring off with the prophets of Baal. Wet wood shouldn't burn, but God made it burn. Think about all of the events in the Old Testament where God would stop the moon, stop the sun, stop or start the rain, stop the waters of the Jordan River. And then even Jesus, when he comes, he shows his power over the storm, his majesty over walking on the water, his command over creation in taking a few loaves and a few fish and feeding the thousands. And we see all the way in Revelation, this idea that, that God will cause incredible events in creation to culminate his great glorious return, earthquakes and storms and famines and locusts. It's all in your scripture. So the plagues are, are really a, a preview of a worldview. And that worldview is simply this. Either there is a creator over all creation— or creation should be worshipped as the source of life. Now watch this. There were three major gods in Egyptian religion associated with the Nile River. Osiris is the god of the river. Nu is the life in the river. And Hapi was the god of fertility. Now drop this in your modern context. Guess how Hapi is symbolized in ancient Egypt? A bearded man with breasts who's pregnant. 
People ain't changed. Sin ain't changed. Don't be surprised. When you worship the creation, the creation gets to define itself. Is that not what the modern worldview is? My happiness means I define me the way I want to live. And yet it never seems to lead to hope. I find very few in any of those crowds that look happy to me. And yet God is saying, I created you. I command creation. And your greatest joy is in me because I love you. Ultimately, that's what he's saying to Israel. I love you. I'm coming to get you. Even though you've forgotten me, I'm going to prove that you are serving the one true God. Which leads to the final view, the point of view, and we'll close. Look how Pharaoh reacts. Verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. Now, this is one of the most sad commentaries. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. One of the things we're going to find as we study the plagues is that they get progressively more difficult. We don't have any reason to believe that while this was a discomforting thing, that this took people's life. It appears as though from the text that God turned the surface of the water blood and that the people were able to dig in the groundwater they could drink during the seven-day duration until the Lord reversed the curse. But I think the most telling sign is the way that it ends. Remember how everything in Pharaoh's theology is built around the Nile. He left his house to go to the river that morning. And that river that he came to bathe in, to worship, is now putrid, and filthy, and stinking of blood. Remember, blood in you is a good thing blood outside of you, most of you can't stomach it, and it always, always leads to health problems. One of the first ways people die in an accident is loss of blood. It's why Jesus ultimately shed his blood showing he was giving his life. It's why in the sacrificial system of the law, which was pre the cross, had the requirement of the shed blood of animals. It's why the Hebrews, according to the law, were not allowed to drink the blood of an animal because blood represented life. They could cook the flesh, they could use the animal, they could have the wool, the bones, but the blood represented life. And so that which is supposed to represent life now represents death to Pharaoh. And in that moment, Instead of seeing the great power of God, the Scripture literally says he just turned and walked back into the house. I couldn't help but think of what Paul says. I think listening to the Word of God is important. Don't turn, just listen to the Word of God in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, not you or me, 
He's talking about the natural world. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Everything you read in the Old Testament pertaining to the rivers and the mountains and the storms and the seas and the animal world. Everything is groaning for a Savior and not only creation, but we ourselves, Paul says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now listen to this. Groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So how do you apply ten plagues to your life? Well, you can relegate them. Yeah, that's a story. It happened a long time ago. Pretty bad deal for the Egyptians, but they were enslaving God's people, and it apparently worked. Or you can say, what is God trying to teach? Yes, those were real moments, and those had real purposes, and they really did mean the real liberation of a real people who are today, this morning, still fighting to exist. But sitting in South Carolina, you also have to see that God is establishing his creative control even in the midst of chaos to remind you and me, this is a broken world, but there is hope. In Christ, creation groans for redemption. I don't know if I've ever asked you this as your pastor. What are you groaning for? We love to say what you're praying for, what you're hoping for. But Paul says, we groan to experience it fully. I know this, any real growth in my life, it certainly requires some praying and some hoping. But it also requires some groaning. And I long to see the power of God manifest in my life and in the people that I impact. When we walk through these plagues, appreciate the historical significance, but also, but also, make sure you see that the same God who is over something as powerful as the Nile River walks with you today. And he is still redeeming people around you. And there is no world power, world order, or world conflict that is a surprise to him. Don't take my word for it. Ask Moses. Moses.